1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today the author of the fascinating new book titled Under the Eye of Power, How Fear of Secret Societies Shapes American Democracy. The book has just come out and we have with us today the author, Dr. Colin Dickey, to tell us all about how the US was born in paranoia and very much continues to be so and that things we might have heard of like Salem or McCarthyism are in fact not not anomalies, but very much part of what's happening throughout. So, Colin, thank you so much for coming on to tell us about your book. Oh, thanks for so much for having me on. Before we get into all things conspiracy, would you mind introducing yourself and explaining a bit why you decided to write this?
0: Um, yeah, I'm Colin Dickey. I'm a sort of cultural historian, I guess is the best way to describe it. Um, I have been kind of sort of on a series of investigations about what I like to call hidden or invisible histories or hidden or invisible things. So um, in 2016, I, I published this book called Ghostland: An American History and Haunted Places, which looked at um, our kind of legacy of like haunted places and why some buildings seemed more haunted than others. Why are Americans so fascinated with things like, you know, Indian burial grounds, quote unquote, and that kind of thing. Um, and from there, I, I wrote a book that came out in 2020 uh, called The Unidentified, which focused on um, cryptids like Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster and UFOs. And um, this topic, the idea of a secret society, um, kind of seemed the next logical step, the, the idea of, a you know, the hidden group that's behind the scenes that is omnipresent, but is never directly felt or apprehended, but yet is sort of controlling the levers of power behind everything that seemed um, kind of the next logical step. So that's that's how the book came about.
1: That makes a lot of sense. And I think that's useful background to kind of understand how you could get into all of these details Mm -hmm. and make it all make sense. Um, So I think we're probably going to go vaguely chronologically through this, um, Though we'll see how much I stick to that. I'd love to start at the beginning because you talk about how conspiracy theories are there from the very beginning. We also have loads now. So maybe that's actually quite a continuity. But actually, reading the book, quite a number of the conspiracy theories in the early United States history actually seem quite weird today um, from our perspective on conspiracy theories. Why is that?
0: I mean, one of the things that I found most fascinating in putting this book together is sort of thinking about the evolution of, of what makes a conspiracy theory, a conspiracy theory. And specifically when is the moment in which conspiracy theories become kind of outside the the realm of, of polite discourse. And I think that one of the things that I, I really was surprised to learn is, is that, um, conspiracy theory as a term isn't invented until, um, the 1940s and, um, Prior to that, there are definitely conspiracy theories, but they are much more likely to be understood as um, fact and 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 sort of normal accepted explanations than they are nowadays, where they're they're written off as as paranoid and fringe. And I think what that has a lot to do with is is the idea that um, you know during the Enlightenment there was a shift where no longer was God seen to be the the prime mover and the responsible party for the day's events now was sort of, uh, man was the measure of all things, quote unquote. And so if something happened that didn't, didn't make sense, didn't immediately, um, fit together, there was no assumption that, um, you know, it was the result of either chaos or the result of, of God positive or negative. Instead, it was this idea that, well, there must be, you know, people behind it because people are, the the prime movers for for everything one way or another. And so we just we must just not know about those people. And I think the most dramatic version of this happens in the 1790s when people are looking at the French Revolution and um, things seem to have gone off the rails. It's they're trying to make sense of all this, you know, bloodshed and violence and these, you know, radical factions taking control. And this theory starts to emerge um, throughout Europe and then comes to America that um, this this long defunct Bavarian organization known as the Illuminati is behind the French Revolution. Um, and again, it's taken as sort of an accepted explanation. Um, George Washington is very receptive to this theory as is um john adams uh you know i mean like it's it's seen as just sort of yes it's it seems likely that this hidden group of of saboteurs is responsible for the french revolution and so these things were just much more accepted by you know supposedly learned or intelligent or you know figures in power um in ways where now they're much more likely to be written off as as fringe and and paranoid Hmm.
1: Also fascinating to find out where the Illuminati piece comes into all of this. Was it then the French Revolution that was the main reason that conspiracy theories grew in the 18th century?
0: I mean, it's it's one of them, definitely. Um, certainly in the political sphere, the French Revolution is, is one of the main ones. Although there were conspiracy theories floating around the American Revolution, um, a number of people alleging that the colonists were being put up to it by um, this time French saboteurs who are hoping to divide uh, England from its colonies or, you know, something along those lines. Um, and, and again, I mean, you know, even even before the founding of the United States, you have, um, you know, the Salem witch trials and other other witch panics in New England, which are also, you know, conspiracy theories in their own way. This idea that uh, your neighbor, your perfectly normal, pious, outgoing neighbor um, is in fact secretly in league with the devil, and she's the reason why your cow died or your your kid got smallpox or whatever. And so um, they certainly predate the Illuminati, but I think the Illuminati is the moment in the 1790s when suddenly there is a, a durable catch-all explanation for uh, political affairs whenever the obvious answer turns out not to be right.
1: Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Now, you mentioned George Washington um, earlier to what extent, kind of how and why were not just him, but really a bunch of America's founding fathers, leading thinkers, f- believing conspiracy theories or even further embracing conspiratorial outlooks? I mean,
0: what what's really interesting about this period is that these, these guys, these men, um, you know, have tried to create this brand new... System of government, something that's never really been tried before in this way, and almost immediately um, they're they're worried about how vulnerable it is, how um, you know this this grand experiment could fail at any moment, and so these conspiracy theories come out of I think a somewhat at least understandable paranoia that that happens in the new American government um, from the moment they they hit upon this idea of, of this form of democracy. Is this idea that um, this is going to be undermined from, you know, saboteurs from without? I think one of the things that I was I was fascinated to kind of discover in the book was that um, for America, conspiracy theories, pretty much until about the mid twentieth century, almost always focused on foreign saboteurs and invaders uh, destroying the American government uh, from afar, and it's only in the second half of the 20th century, that we start to get more and more conspiracy theories uh, that involve the government itself, that the government is now the villain, the enemy who is trying to bring down its own citizens.
1: That's quite a big shift. Um, And interestingly, there's there's another, to me, that was kind of one of the two big shifts that I learned about from your book, the other one being the status of Freemasons, um, which... I certainly thought of as, oh yeah, like the Illuminati, one of the shadowy groups that's behind things. But actually, the Freemasons are super public for a while; um, are not at all seen as scary or shadowy. How did they go from that to what we might think of them now?
0: Yeah, the the, the Freemasons in in the eighteenth century are very public. Um, they're they're not hidden at all. I mean, it is still uh, a private group. Uh, they're their meetings and their rights are, are secret, but, but they're out and about, they have these grand parades. They, they show themselves off. And really um, the conclusion I came to when I, when I was working through this history was that uh, the American colonists, they, they didn't like the English system of uh, hereditary aristocracy and, and ancestry and inheriting lineage and crap like that. But, they did like the idea of an aristocracy. They did like the idea of an upper class, um, and I think of somebody like Ben Franklin as a great example of this. Ben Franklin saw himself, in, you know, in a pretty benevolent way as a kind of first among equals, as this idea that he was really trying to understand and define what an ideal American democratic citizen would look like. And so he's founding public libraries. He's, uh, you know, founding volunteer fire departments. He's really trying to do things that will sort of demonstrate what one's civic obligations are so he he as a model of American kind of upper classness um, he joins the Freemasons and because the Freemasons are a way of of distinguishing this group of people from ordinary citizens but it's a kind of um, it's it's a it's a class distinction without, hereditary ancestry. So anybody can join the Freemasons. But once you're in the Freemasons, you are you are elevated among uh, your peers. And so that's kind of the initial obsession that Americans have with the Freemasons. And it's not really until the 1820s, that this organization has grown so large and gotten so unruly that it starts to take on a life of of its own. And the the attitude of the general American population towards the Freemasons starts to shift.
1: Hmm. And shift it very much does. Moving to a different conspiracy theory discussed in the book. Um, to be honest, I never really thought about the Underground Railroad as being a conspiracy theory. But of course, that opens up uh, very much an interesting area of discussion. Why were Southern leaders, the ones who presumably would be against the idea of a network of people helping uh, enslaved African Americans become free? Why did what purposes did it serve for them to talk up this network?
0: Yeah, I, I think I was not really prepared for this either. I mean, when I started this book, I knew I knew I was going to look at secret societies. I was thinking about the Freemasons and the Illuminati, um, as well as, you know, the anti-Semitic accusations about the protocols of the Elders of Zion. So I, as a way of sort of formulating the scope of the project, I, I sort of sat down and I said, OK, I'm going to look at the idea of a secret group that's either real or imagined. Um, that is operating behind the scenes in a coordinated fashion to either break American laws, violate American democracy, or undermine American civil liberties. You know, sort of broadly speaking. And almost immediately, um, I realized that the Underground Railroad fits that that bill. This was a group of a networked group of people who were working in secret behind the scenes to violate American laws, and the the law in question. Is the Fugitive Slave Act, which is, you know, definitely a law worth violating. So, you know, I mean, I think it's, you know, uh, a noble, and just, and ethical purpose, but it, it, it was sort of like, oh, right, this, this is another version of this. And sure enough, uh, what I found is is that prior to the Civil War, the South was riven with paranoia, and specifically around things like the the Underground Railroad and abolitionists, who they perceived, um, much in the way that a century later, Americans perceived, uh, communists as sort of hiding in every mailbox, sort of the abolitionists were everywhere. They were undermining this, you know, quote unquote, wonderful way of life. They had to be stopped at all means. There was just this incredible paranoia. Uh, anything that, that happened out of the, the obvious was sort of blamed on abolitionists, even, a a, you know, a spade of fires in Texas that had a very obvious cause of these um, phosphorus matches that uh, were known to spontaneously combust, nonetheless was blamed on abolitionists who were who were thought to be, you know, destroying Texas and that kind of thing. So so this became a, a huge sort of paranoid element of the South that, that fed directly into the Civil sort of War.
1: Yeah, I gotta say, coming into reading this book, I was not expecting that either. And um... I was expecting, as you mentioned, the discussion of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, but I wasn't really thinking about anti-Catholic ones. Mm. Can you talk about the role that these conspiracy theories and bigotry played, especially in relation to debates about slavery?
0: Yeah. I mean, again, the the anti-Catholic conspiracy theories are such a, a fundamental part of how American, primarily Protestant democracy imagines itself because, um, the, the, these, these Protestant men who were, who were establishing this democracy, they were trying to establish this idea of, of a citizen, this sort of independent thinker who could vote, who could make an informed rational decision. And they assumed that, that Catholics, um, were, so beholden to their their priests and by extension the Pope in Rome that they, they wouldn't be able to function as citizens. And so what starts as a kind of theoretical anti-Catholic uh, Catholicism, the idea that um, the, the structure of Catholicism is inimical to a sovereign state's democracy like the United States, by the middle of the 19th century has has taken on a much more uh, jingoistic and xenophobic attitude where um, you know particularly as immigrants from you know Italy and Ireland and other predominantly Catholic countries start coming to America um, this anti-catholicism becomes increasingly uh, a constituent of, of bigotry and, and violence. Um, one of the, the things I talk about in the book which um, is sort of little remarked on now is the the, the convent outside of Boston, The Ursuline Convent, uh, which had been used to train the 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 teenage uh, girls of this the well elite uh, the well heeled elite of Boston, um, who would send their their daughters there for an education, um, became the focal point of a series of conspiracy theories that mirror very closely onto the contemporary conspiracy theories around um, Pizzagate and, you know, quote unquote, groomers, this idea that the the Catholics were subjecting these young women to, um, you know, horrible sexual abuse and depravity, which boiled over in 1834 uh, to this mob burning this convent to the ground. And, you know, sort of, again, you know, presaged our modern era quite explicitly just uh, 190 years ago.
1: Some of the links from the examples that I wasn't aware of in the book to today were really quite striking, um, that being one of them. Thinking about um, the Civil War, I did say I was probably going to jump back and forth in time, and here, here we go. Um there's obviously some amount still of debate about the causes of the Civil War, and I thought you made an interesting intervention by saying that it wasn't necessarily slavery in and of itself, but the, quote, default paranoid state engendered by slavery. You mentioned paranoia earlier when we talked about the Underground Railroad. Can you tell us a bit about this?
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the th- ways that conspiracy theories works, conspiracy theories work is that they... Um, narrow down your possible interpretations. So if if you are not beholden to conspiracy theories when some new development happens you you use your faculties of reason to try and understand the most plausible explanation and you act accordingly. The more you are beholden to a conspiracy theory, the more any new development will look like further proof of that. And so this is this is why they're so insidious is because a a conspiracy theory is by its definition uh, all-encompassing and um, exhaustive Um, the the philosopher who coins the the term conspiracy theory karl popper has this line which i i quote in the book that you know the conspiracy theory of society happens when you get rid of god and ask what's in its place so if you believe for example that the jews control the media um, then everything that happens, no matter what it is, is a result of, quote unquote, the Jews controlling the media. This is why you see anti-Semites who will argue, you know, in these baffling ways that the Holocaust was a, a psyop, uh, you know, by the Jews and sort of other complete nonsense like that. So what happens in the Civil War or in the in the South in the in the run up to the Civil War is as Southern slave owners become more and more beholden to these conspiracy theories about abolitionists and the Underground Railroad. Um, then, everything that happens is immediately taken as proof of that conspiracy theory. So we've we've already talked about the the Texas fires that were obviously the result of these phosphorus matches that would spontaneously combust when the weather was hot enough, uh, but were immediately taken as proof of an abolitionist conspiracy and that continued to boil over until the election of Abraham Lincoln which as you know most people know and all historians agree was a moderate centrist candidate you know again not unlike Joe Biden in 2020 who was nonetheless seen as the final straw of the abolitionist takeover of the federal government, and you know, prompted um, secession in South Carolina. So, I think that the the thing about conspiracy theories is they narrow your understanding of the world to such an, a degree that your um, your options for action become more and more limited, and that that is their design and their purpose, and um, why they are dangerous and insidious.
1: So, thinking about that and how it works, there's a Again, some really direct lines to conspiracy theories that we still have, and of course, um, one of them is about bankers and what they might be doing. How and why did bankers become the target of conspiracy theories from the late nineteenth century?
0: Um, You know, it's it's an interesting and complicated question because I think that a lot of conspiracy theories have at least a a bare bones in truth, and I think that banking conspiracy theories are, are. great example of that in the sense that um you know there is a lot of shenanigans in the financial sector i mean you know there's lots of fraud there's lots of abuse there's lots of uh underhanded dealing people have a low estimation of uh bankers often with good reason um what happened in the 19th century was that the united states did not have a central government and thus or sorry a central bank and thus was um, vulnerable to massive uh financial swings ups and downs so so economic depressions and recessions were a regular feature of the second half of the 19th century you know uh, what happened in 2008 would happen in the united states maybe two three times a decade before the creation of the federal reserve and and so the federal reserve gets created in uh the 19 teens and from us you know a group of politicians who are basically like this is actually insane and they go to europe and they they look at other um countries who have these functioning federal uh reserves and these central banks and they're like oh these these people don't have depressions like we do we should adopt something like this but they by that point people's estimation of the banking sector and and politicians has sunk to such a degree that they realize that they can't do this openly because nobody will sign on for it so they uh what happens is a, a group of um politicians and bankers take the secret trip to this hunting reserve in georgia this place called jekyll island um where they hash out the plan which will soon become adopted as uh, the Federal Reserve, but they do it in secret uh, because they're afraid that if they are open about it people will turn against it. So of course this then creates problems with a different set of conspiracy theories because now everybody wants to know well why was this done in secret you know and so um, as people have have fixated on this this uh, this secret meeting there's a, a famous anti-federal Reserve book, uh, published by this uh, anti-Semite who was a, a protege of Ezra Pound, and it's called "The Creature from Jekyll Island." This idea that uh, what happened there was this abomination that that has ruined America ever since.
1: How fascinating! There's, I, I could ask you so many more questions just about that one particular example, but I won't. I will move us on. Um, <laughs> Why did the focal point of conspiracy theories change so much after World War II and of all places focus on American suburbia?
0: Yeah, I think I what I was when I put together this book, um I I tend to be a kind of spatial and topological thinker if that makes sense and I I I realized that the the thread that was running through these books or these, these conspiracy theories was this idea that there's always a public front and a, and a hidden, hidden subterranean thing. So the the book is sort of organized around these series of dualities. There is, you know, the underground railroad is sort of a perfect example. Like by, by the 19th century, there's this fascination with the underground, with the subterranean. And by the middle of the 20th century, there's this weird fascination with the idyllic public nature of the suburbs where everything seems to be great and normal and wonderful and yet lurking behind it is this this terrible secret uh, and so i mean it's the kind of thing that that will show up in philip k dick uh novels like um which is the one uh martian time slip is that the one where he's living in this idyllic little suburban town and then finds out that things are not what they seem you know so um we kind of start to become more and more fixated on this idea that there's something secret lurking in the closet leaking lurking behind things and in by the end of the 20th century in the 1980s. um, This becomes most famously associated with the with the satanic ritual abuse panic this idea that any given suburban daycare any given suburban home uh, could be a front for a horrific satanic ring of uh, sexual predators and murderers and you know the the idea that that um, daycares were no longer a safe place for children they were actually places where like horrible rituals were being carried out as soon as you dropped your kid off and went to work
1: that's pretty intense <laughs> I'm wondering on that idea of kind of the subterranean fascination as well as the space is that kind of one front but then something else is happening is that why do you think places like the bohemian grove or skull and bones are so ripe as places for conspiracy theory
0: yeah i mean absolutely like you know one of the things i find really fascinating is people who are obsessed with the bohemian grove or or skull and bones as these places where some dark rituals are happening and deals are being made souls are being sold and that's how somebody like George Bush ends up being president. I'm like, no, George Bush ends up being George W. Bush ends up being president because his father was president. He was incredibly well connected and rich. And he, you know, there, there's no mystery there. There's no conspiracy there. That seems, you know, very obvious. And yet I think people want to mystify it and make it into something that is secret and terrifying and, um, you know, ritualistic and has some sort of element of the occult because we we are so fascinated with what goes on behind closed doors and we have this tendency to, to almost mythologize that and make that into something more than it is when i i think we don't have to i think again it's it's very obvious you know the the iraq war is a very obvious conspiracy there's nothing there's nothing hidden or subterranean about it it's all done out in the open like there's 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 no mystery there
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense, but it does seem to keep happening. So is there anything that can be done about the popularity of conspiracy theories, given that your book clearly demonstrates this is not a new phenomenon?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things I found is growing up in the United States, um, I was raised to know about, you know, the Salem Witch Trials and the McCarthy hearings. And the latter primarily because of Arthur Miller's The Crucible, which is an allegory about um, McCarthyism, but is based on the Salem witch trials. And the, the idea was these were two moments in time when things got out of hand, when things got a little crazy, paranoia got the best of people, injustice was done, but for the most part, we don't have to worry about that and things are better now. And what I tried to do in the book is show that, no, in fact, it's the case that pretty much every generation these moral panics get recycled. Um, And oftentimes it's, it's almost the same script verbatim. So I think one of the things we can do is be more aware of the fact that these things do happen on this, on this cycle and thus we can be more proactive and not just assume that um, everything is going to be hunky dory because we're, you know, we've come a long way from Salem because I don't think we have. So I think it's important to, to recognize The the almost banal repetition of these conspiracy theories and these moral panics, because the more obvious they are, the more likely we are to spot them before they, they get out of hand.
1: That's an encouraging note to draw this to a close. Um, with, I only have one final question. Then, um, this book is obviously available for people to read. It's no longer something you're working on. Um, you talked us through a little bit of the beginning. What your previous projects have been? Is there anything you're working on next?
0: I mean, book wise, it's it's hard to say. There's there's a couple of of. Uh of ideas that I've been sort of working through, but but nothing, nothing that I I can really share at the moment. I've been it's October here. And I've been uh, going back to to my ghostly ways. And I've I've been writing a few nonfiction essays about about ghosts and, uh, and hauntings, which uh, hopefully will will happen here before the month is over. And that's, that's where I'm sort of focusing my energy right now. But hopefully, hopefully, there'll be another book to come along and and hopefully complement some of this other stuff and maybe take these arguments in a new direction
1: well good luck with the haunting this month and hopefully we do get to see another book and we'll have you back to tell us all about it um but in the meantime of course uh listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled under the eye of power how fear of secret societies shapes american democracy colin thank you so much for being with us on the podcast
0: thank you so much for having me on this was a lot of fun